awesome way to serve. Um, thanks for you to serving, for how you serve in Grace Kids. You make it possible not only for um, all the adults to be able to hear God's Word preached and to so be transformed as our minds are renewed by hearing God's Word, but you also are a huge part of equipping and training the next and the next and the next generation that comes after us, teaching them to obey, teaching them to observe all that God has commanded us. You're, you're making disciples in Grace Kids, so thanks very much for doing that. We are grateful for your service. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38. Let's listen to God's holy, inspired, infallible Word. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard therefore, so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, he took, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day to Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. The day after we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when he came, when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves into all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said 
It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is good for us. Thank you that your word is profitable for us. Thank you that you are able to instruct us in many different ways through your word. That you speak to our human condition. You give us examples of godly men who followed you for us to follow as they follow you. God, I pray that we would be inspired by this example, by this account of Paul. As, as your grace is at work in and through his life, as your grace was at work through his life, Lord, I pray that it would give us faith for your grace to be at work in and through our lives as well. May we hear from you. Would you give me grace to speak and give grace to hear? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, back in May of 2008, there was a Wall Street Journal article by a man named Jeffrey Zaslow. And he wrote... Saying goodbye, it's a part of the human experience that we encounter every day. Sometimes nonchalantly, sometimes with great emotion. Then eventually the time comes for the final goodbye. When death is near, how do we phrase our words? How do we show our love? Randy Pausch, a professor at Pittsburgh's Carnegie Mellon University, had become famous for the way in which he chose to say goodbye to his students and colleagues. His final lecture to them, delivered last September, that's September 2008, turned into a phenomenon viewed by millions on the Internet. Dying of pancreatic cancer, he showed a love of life and an approach to death that people have found inspiring. He goes on to write, For many of us, his lecture has become a reminder that our own futures are similarly, if not drastically, brief. His fate is ours sped up. Through both his lecture and his life, Randy offered a realistic roadmap to the final farewell. His approach, pragmatic, heartfelt, sometimes quirky, often joyous, can't help but leave you wondering, he writes, How will I say goodbye? How will I say goodbye? How will you say goodbye? Think about those words. How will I say goodbye? If we take time to think about it, we take time to reflect on it, to to respond, to make positive changes, that can be a very profitable question for all of us to ponder. The Apostle Paul clearly was thinking about that as he was planning to skip past Ephesus. It was too painful for him to stop there. He didn't want to stop there. He knew he would, he would spend more time. He was on his way to Jerusalem to go to, to give an offering that he had collected through all the churches on the day of Pentecost. And so he's, he's planning not to stop there, but for some reason the, sti- the ship stops off in Miletus. He realizes there's enough time to say goodbye. And so Paul delivers what he thought would be his final goodbye to the church in Ephesus. And it's provoking. How would we say goodbye? What would we tell people is important to us? What kind of charge would we give to the next generation? Maybe to our children. 
This passage is a little unique because it's the only speech that's addressed in Acts directly to Christians. And in its Paul's, at that time, he thought a farewell speech. He didn't know what was about to happen to him, what was about to transpire, but everywhere he went, he kept getting these prophecies. Man, you're going to be put into, into chains. You're going to be put in bonds. You're going to be in prison. Afflictions are going to happen to you. Could you imagine that? Every city you go visit, say you're on vacation, you're going from city to city, and everywhere you go, somebody randomly comes up and prophesies, by the way, when you go home, you're going to be, you're going to be put in prison. You're like, what is going on here? After a while, it had to affect Paul, and he thought about what he would want to transmit to the next generation. He thought about his example, and he thought about what he wanted to leave the disciples, leave the church with. And so these are the words that we have. Essentially, Paul's goodbye, at least as he thought, to the church in Ephesus. Paul might have thought these were his last words or coming up upon them, although he lived in some form of imprisonment for the, for the latter, for ten more years or so. But he had to have thought something major is going to happen. All I know is everywhere I go, I keep getting these prophecies that I may be put into bondage and, 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 and put in some kind of imprisonment and some kind of afflictions. I know this is going to be bad because I've not had this overwhelming in every city I go to. And yet he was compelled. The Holy Spirit was leading him back to Jerusalem. And here Paul is likely giving them what he thinks is his last lecture. And it's really insightful, isn't it? Because it gives us a glimpse into what example and what advice Paul wanted to leave the church with. And Luke records it because I believe it's, it's written down for our example as well. It's written down for what do we do when men like the Apostle Paul are no longer around. And by the way, they are no longer around. And Luke records this interaction and speech and wrote it down. And it seems he wants the reader to see what does it look like to live this gospel-centered life that is given to faithful service of the Lord and faithful proclamation of the gospel. What does it look like? What does a life that's spent for God and His gospel look like? And that's what we have really in these verses. And if I was going to sum up the entire scene, maybe... Luke's main idea, maybe his key message to his reader would be something like this, of follow Paul's example in giving your life, testifying to the gospel, and ministering faithfully. Follow Paul's example in in giving your life, in testifying to the gospel, and in ministering faithfully. You know, from a very early age, if you think about it, example is a very powerful thing, isn't it? Example is a very powerful thing. My daughter Eva, she's learned to walk awkwardly, but she's learned to walk somewhat, probably by watching me because it's so awkward. But from a very early age, we learn to walk by watching example of our parents or our siblings. We learn our first words by watching and listening to the example of those around us. We pick up accents and innuendos, kind of speech kind of patterns. We pick those things up from the people around us by example. We learn behavior by example too, don't we? Some of those things are really cute. When I look at my kids and I can see myself, some of those other things, I think, oh my goodness, they're learning by my example, please no. Whether we like it or not, though, we're shaped to some degree by the example of those around us, aren't we? Now, example is, it's not necessarily determinative, but it can be a very powerful, informative influence on how we live. And God knows that, and so He gives us different examples in Scripture. 
And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, follow my example. Paul actually encouraged that. And so he's encouraging that here in Acts too. Follow my example, he told the Corinthians, as I follow the example of Christ. So here Paul is laying out his example for the elders and disciples to follow. And there's something he repeats several times. He says, you know, you know how I lived. This is how I lived. You saw how I lived. This is what I did. You saw what I did. Now you go and do. And then in verses 14 to 17, Luke's kind of setting the stage for Paul's speech. He tells us some of the background. We don't know exactly why Paul changed his mind kind of because he didn't want to go to Ephesus. But he's, he's so desirous of communicating some final words of encouragement, exhortation. He wants to leave a legacy with them. He wants to care for the church when he's gone. And so he leaves us the speech, and he begins it in verse 18. If you look down your Bibles, by calling them to remember his example, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. So he's saying, remember, the whole time I lived with you, you, you know how I lived with you. From the first day that I set foot in Asia... And then he goes on to instruct them. At the end of his speech, look down in verse 34. He says, in his closing exhortation, he says, You yourselves know. What's he doing? He's calling them to see the example, the life that he's lived for them. And, and to follow him as he's followed Christ, to, to learn from example. It's similar to, if, if I knew that this week was my last week, what would I want to do? I'd want to call my kids. I'd want to tell them some of my experiences. Good and bad examples, I'd want to tell them. I want them to learn from me so I could impart to them whatever wisdom I had so I could care for them. And to Paul, he's doing that here. He's encouraging them. And, and Luke wrote it down because he thought this was important encouragement for his readers to follow Paul's example. Paul wants them to know how to carry on without him. Luke's recorded that so we now, many readers later, to know how to carry on without the apostles present in person. The first thing we're going to look at in verses 17 to 21, it's, it's Paul's example of living for the Lord and his gospel. What, if you're going to kind of sum up verses 17 to 21, what is Paul, his example showing us is that what he lived for was for God. He lived for the Lord and he lived for communicating the gospel. He says in verse 18, the whole time I was among you, look in 19, he says, I lived Serving the Lord with all humility. I think probably only the Apostle Paul can get away with writing that. <laughs> but he said in, in 1 Corinthians 15.9, to give you a little context, he was a humble man. 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, Paul knew who he was. He knew that he wasn't fit to be an apostle. He knew that in himself he was the least of all the apostles because he persecuted the church. But then look in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but by the grace of God, not by his own merit, not by his own abilities, not by his intellect, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I. So even he's saying, I worked harder than all the apostles, but it really wasn't my strength. He says, yet, but not I, but the grace of God with me. And Paul's reminding them in Acts, the way that he lived among them, he lived humbly. He was aware that he was the least. And, and most likely, this also means that 
he lived in some form of humiliation amongst them in some sense. He was a servant among them. He worked for his own food. We know that he believed that it was good and right to pay those who labored in the word. And yet, because he did not want them to think that he was laboring in the word for gain, he worked among them the whole time he was there. He was an apostle, but not like people today who call themselves apostles and live large. He didn't expect people to serve him. Remember, this is the same Apostle Paul in Philippians, and he instructed the church there. He says, Philippians 2, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. I can't help but think the Apostle Paul not only preached that, he lived that way. And if you look at his example in all the churches and and what he endured and how he humbled himself and was humiliated, he really did. He counted others as more significant than himself. He lived so that others might benefit from him. Then he goes on to verse 19 and he says that not only did I serve in humility, I served with tears and with trials. His work was difficult, it was anguishing, but he continued to trust in the grace of God and be faithful to the commission he had been given. Paul served the Lord in humility through tears and trials and persecution. He was an example of a faithful servant to the Lord and he lived for the Lord by living to equip the saints, living to proclaim and explain and apply the gospel. The good news that that Jesus came to set us free, to change us, to redeem us, to make us alive, that we can live by His grace each day, that no matter how weak we are in our weakness, we're made strong because of His life-giving news. And that's what He lived for. And then in verse 20, if you look down, Paul says, I did not shrink back. What does that mean? It means he, he wasn't timid. He wasn't... He wasn't fearful. He wasn't thinking, oh no, what will people think about me if I tell them this news? What will the Jews do to me if I tell them that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah? Will they persecute me again? Because everywhere I go, I keep getting persecuted. No, he, he, he didn't shrink back like that. He didn't wonder or worry, what if I say something to offend people's sensibilities? Now he preached the good news of the gospel and served the Lord. He says, I did not shrink back from anything, from teaching you anything that could profit you. He sought their gain and their, te- and their, their encouragement when he taught publicly from house to house. He would have been tempted, just like you and I are, to fear man. I mean, I don't know about anybody in this room who's not tempted in some way to, to wonder, to be concerned about in some small way. What do people think about me? When I encounter somebody I don't know and... Uh, and there's an opportunity to tell them about the good news of Jesus. It, it's a thought in my mind. Hang on. What would the reaction be like here? Now, I've got to put that to death and, and move forward. So, so Paul was tempted like every man, but he says, but I, I, I didn't shrink back. I was tempted to shrink back, but I didn't shrink back. Why? Because the gospel is too important. Living for the Lord And not for man is what really matters. Verse 21 tells us that the main content of his testimony was repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's not a popular message, is it? If you're talking to your friends, to your co-workers, to 
Somebody you meet on the street or in a cafe, and, and your main content of your communication is you want to make sure that they in some way know about the repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ, or hear your expression of that, or you can direct them to the good news. It's not a popular message. And yet, it's the only transforming, life-giving message we have. Only the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And he tells this message of turning from trusting in ourselves and to trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the message we need to hear each and every day. Turning away from selfishness, laziness for me. Turning away from kind of taking it easy and saying, no, I'm going to trust in Jesus to do the work He's called me to do and that by His grace, He's going to enable me to do what He's called me to do. Paul exemplified what it means to live for the Lord Jesus in the gospel. And I wonder what will be said of you and of me in our time here. Here's here's the good news. By God's grace, no matter where we find ourselves. I I was so convicted as I was reading and, 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 and learning about Paul's example and just thinking back all through the book of Acts. You know, from in Acts 9, Paul is persecuting the Christians. He's He's seeking to kill them, to put them in prison, to put them in bondage. Jesus dramatically transforms him. And he was so aware of the grace of God that changed him. He was so aware he had no merit on his own, that God made him who he was, that he just he laid down his life to live for God. I want to have that same kind of passion. I want to have that same kind of God-exalted view that says, Jesus, you are highly exalted. You are the name above all names. You are worthy of living for. And turn away from all those lesser things that sometimes I live for. Those lesser entertainments and indulgences. Those, those sins that really seem so petty. And here's the good news. By God's grace, no matter where we find ourselves, we can trust in Him to live to, to enable us to live our lives faithfully for the Lord and to testify, to make our lives a testimony. You know, I look back at my life and I think to my shame that in my Christian walk, it's not always been a testimony to the good news of Jesus Christ. But boy, when I read accounts like this, I want to I spend my life and be spent testifying to the good news. And in the, in the end, that's the only thing that's going to be lasting. That's what will remain. It's the most important thing that we can pass on to those after us. If I think and sit and think about my children and what would my last lecture be to them, what would I want to impart to them, it wouldn't be a laundry list of do's and don'ts. It wouldn't be a list of external behavior. It, at the top of the list, would say, get to know God. Get to know Him in His Word. Find out who He is. Give your life for Him. Because he gave his life for you. And then spend your life loving God and loving other people. I think it would be relatively short. Paul's encouragement here is relatively short. He's putting it back to his example. How he lived for God. Now in verses 22 to 25, Paul drops a bomb on them. He drops a little bit of a bomb on them. He tells them, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I know that bonds or imprisonment await me there. Because everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit keeps telling me this. You can imagine up to this point, people were listening politely to him, saying, yeah, Paul, we're going to miss you, and we'll see you again someday, and you'll be back. But he says, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and you're never going to see me again. They must have gotten pretty quiet. 
You can almost hear Luke saying as he recorded these versions, pay attention. Don't live for the here and now. And that's kind of the, the second idea that we see in verses 22 to 24. Living to run the race set before us. You know, a, a long time ago, many, many years ago when I was, when I was younger, I ran a 10K race and I had severe bronchitis at the time. It wasn't my brightest moment. It wasn't the smartest thing, but I pushed through and I was hacking, I was coughing, and I was, it was in a lot of bodily pain because I wanted to finish the race. But why I wanted to finish the race is because I was running alongside my brother, who's five years older than me, and I didn't by any means want to lose to him. And then my brother-in-law was there too, and he cares much about him because he's, he's 12 years older than me, so, you know, I was going to beat him no matter what. But, but I, I, I was running the race because I didn't want to get, I didn't want to get beaten by my brother. I didn't care if I had bronchitis or not, I'd never hear the end of it. I don't know if you, any of you have, um, a, a healthy competitive relationship with your siblings. It's, it was a healthy competitive relationship, and it was good. And um, the other the other real reason why the bigger motivation for me to run and keep running with bronchitis and I was hacking and I just wanted to keel over I could barely breathe I was puffing on my inhaler <gasps> the whole time and but the biggest motivation was that my wife and um, my sister in law were running and my sister were running behind us <laughs> I thought there's no way I'm stopping I don't care and one of them had a cold you know I'm like hey, uh, they're gonna say I had a cold too and I ran and I finished. I said, no way, I'm, I'm going to finish this race. So I kept puffing, and I finished the course. But Paul here, he's, he's not finishing the course of life, the race of life for wrong motivations. He's not in competition. He, he doesn't care what Apollos does or Peter or the other people do. What he runs the race for is what really I should have been running the race for um, is just to finish. What Paul ran the race for was to win the prize. Flip over in your Bibles. It's not on your overheads, but flip over in your Bibles to Philippians 3, if you will, please. To Philippians 3. If you don't have a Bible, look on with somebody beside you. In Philippians 3, in verse 12 to 14, here, here's what Paul says about the race of his life. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. How is this motivation to keep going? Christ Jesus has made me his own. I can do this because he's made me his own. I've already been bought. And he says, brothers, I do not consider, in verse 13, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He was running the race to win the prize of seeing and knowing Jesus Christ fully. He was running the race for the pleasure of his Savior. And so Paul is saying, and you know, I'm running this course. I'm constrained by the Spirit. Look in verse 22 of, of Acts 9, 20. He says, and, uh, I was constrained by the Spirit. And that's an interesting word. It's the same word that in Acts 9, 2 and 9, 14 and 9, 21, three other times earlier, it was used, it was, it was translated as bound. And, and it was translated there in Acts of 
speaking of Paul's activity to bind the Christians, to, to put them in chains, to imprison them. And so he's saying, I'm constrained. The Holy Spirit has bound me. I am going to Jerusalem. I am bound. And I know some bad things are going to happen to me there, but I'm still going to run this course. The Holy Spirit's leading him straight to Jerusalem and eventually on to Rome. He's going to be bound in Jerusalem like he bound the Christians. Because he's bound by the ministry that the Lord Jesus gave to him to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. And and what's Paul doing? He's putting serving God and running for him, running for Jesus and his pleasure, running to glorify him, running that he might receive the prize. Finishing his course, he says, and the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus. And he's putting that above all his personal safety and his own bodily comfort. Boy, that's compelling, isn't it? How many times do I think, I'm just going to take it easy because I'm tired or I'm weary? Paul must have gotten weary. He says, I was with you in much weakness and fear and trembling. He had a thorn in the flesh. But he, he says something. He says that, look down in your Bible. It says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to me. I want to I run this course that I've been given because I want to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. What does he mean when he said, I didn't account my life as any value or precious to myself? Well, there's a guy named Daryl Bach in his commentary in these verses. I love the way he puts it. He says, this language reflects business accounting or reckoning where his soul has its only worth in its service to God. Think about that. His soul, he's accounting his soul as if it only has worth in its service to God. Paul could lose his life, but it would not matter if it were done for God as the gospel is preached. His only desire is to accomplish the course to which the Lord Jesus has called him as he testifies to the content of God's grace in the gospel. His soul only has its worth in its service to God. His only desire was to accomplish the course to which Jesus called him as he testified to the content of God's grace in the gospel. Where do we find our worth? Where do we find our soul's worth? Where do we find value in this life? You know what's most valuable? It's living for the pleasure of King Jesus. It's living for the one who has died for us. Living for the one who promises to sustain us and enable us in this race and give us his grace. Living for the one that will reward and award us on the final day. Living as a trophy of God's grace. That's compelling, isn't it? Do we see our lives that way? Do you see that all of this life is really meant to be a trophy to the grace of God? A trophy to the good news of the gospel? We see this, this race of life that we're in, this ministry that God has given to each and every Christian here. And yes, he's addressing elders, but this is not limited to elders. Um, every person in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ has been given a ministry by God. And so everyone in some way can testify to the gospel, the grace of God, and whatever ministry he's called you to. But you know, so often we forget why we're running this race, don't we? We get distracted, don't we? I I do. I forget. I think life's about 
work or a home or finances or I think life's about kids and although kids are extremely important they're a gift from God but they're not the point of life God's given us some of us a spouse some children others are single some may die at a very old age some may die very young but to all here who are Christians we're called to glorify God by making our whole life a testimony both in word and in deed to the good news, the grace of God and Christ Jesus. Our whole course of life, it is meant to display God's grace and the good news of the gospel. Our whole course of life, this race that we're on, it's, it's given to testify to the grace that we've received. The, the grace of God that's, that's broken through our darkness and shattered our stony hearts, that's saved us, that's opened up our eyes to see God to begin with. What is, what, what is this grace? This, this grace that enables us to be strong in Him even though that we're weak. The grace of God that enables us to stand in the midst of trials and afflictions and temptations. We're meant to testify to the grace of God that enables us to be faithful and keep running. The grace of God that's going to preserve us until the end. It's the good news, the grace of God. This course of life that we run is meant to testify to. And then we see that not only did Paul just run this race and he did it quietly, he, he did it boldly. He didn't shrink back. He ran this race and he, he, let, he ran the race boldly. And so the third example that Luke's going to give us of show off of Paul's life is in, in verses 25 to 27. He's going to show us the example of Paul living boldly for God. What, how did Paul live day by day? He lived boldly before God. It's an example of living boldly before God. Look in verse 25. He says, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He knows they won't see him. He knows that the people he went among proclaiming the kingdom won't won't get the benefit of his company anymore and he won't get to see them. I think it's interesting because Paul, Paul describes and sums up his ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God, of this bold proclamation. And, and that's really what we see at the very end of Acts. If, if you want, look in Acts 28, verse 30. What does it say about Paul in the last sentence of Acts? The last sentence of Acts. Where do we see Paul? It says in, in the last sentence of Acts, in Acts 28, 30, it says, He lived there two whole years, talking about in prison, in Rome, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is a, a bold proclamation in the midst of imprisonment, in the midst of suffering and difficulties and trials. He was boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God. It says, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What? Without hindrance? He was in jail when he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Wouldn't that be a little hindering? What he's saying is he didn't let that stop him from boldly proclaiming. Yeah, he might have been physically confined. But he wasn't confined in his boldness in proclaiming the kingdom. And that's where Luke leaves us. And I wonder, sometimes in my own life, if I make too many excuses for things that hinder me from proclaiming the kingdom of God. Well, Paul says his conscience is clear. He's boldly proclaimed and taught everything that he could. He says in verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There wasn't anything I kept back. He was bold. He didn't shrink back. Recently read an account 
of how the war for independence from Britain in 1776 was going very poorly that winter. And a man named Thomas Paine wrote a speech. And he said, at the most difficult time, he says, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Now I emphasize this because I want to show you that it's this hell is not easily conquered. And yet we do have this consolation with us. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. We have a hard conflict in this life. We're not living for this country though. We don't live for the United States. We don't live for independence. What we live for is true independence and freedom that comes only in Christ Jesus and for a country that's not here. And that is opposed far more. That freedom, that independence that we find in Christ Jesus. Now I mean independence from sin that we find in Him. It's opposed in a far more difficult way. And the forces of hell will be arrayed against us and yet... We know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we can have all boldness knowing that we're proclaiming we are fighting for something more valuable than any earthly kingdom that will fade. We're fighting for the kingdom of God that will never fade, never fail. And that the triumph of Jesus is even more glorious in the end. So we can proclaim boldly. Well, after telling this, Paul gives a key exhortation. It's really his final exhortation to the elders in the church. And and what he says to them in essence is, is, is live attentive to yourself. Pay attention. He says, live attentive to yourselves and to the church. Live attentive to yourself and the church. Look in verse 28. He says, pay careful attention. Be on guard paying attention. Have a, a guarding kind of attention. But he's not just saying watch out for the church so that bad things don't happen to church. What's the first place he calls their attention to? Pay careful attention. Live attentively to yourselves. And that doesn't mean serving yourself. But he's saying pay attention because you're going to have threats from within your own heart. Pay attention to yourself. Don't be deceived. Don't assume you're doing okay. Be aware there's temptations from within your own heart that are going to distract you and take you away. Don't assume you're immune to a certain kind of sin. You're no longer prone to a sin in a certain way. Pay careful attention to yourself. Be always on guard for this, for what's happening within you. Live soberly. And then his charge, it it carried a great weight with them as well, didn't it? He, He called them to pay attention not only to themselves and to the flock, but he, he does that with a whole Trinitarian view in mind. He says, pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to the church. Why? Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are intricately involved in your ministry. The Holy Spirit, he says, made you overseers. He was the one who gave you these gifts. The Holy Spirit made you an overseer. He gave you gifts. He's the one who made you alive. He's at work in you. So pay attention to yourself and to the church. And then he says, it's God's church, not yours. 
and you're entrusted to pay attention to this church and think about it, if you were going and you were entrusted to take care of God's children, you go and knock on his door and he says, hey, you can watch my kids for a little while, but bring them back. I think I'd probably be aware of what I said and did around them because I would wonder, (laughs) what's he going to know and see? And oh my goodness. And that same kind of sobriety, he says, pay attention to yourselves. The Holy Spirit gave you these gifts and it's God's church. So pay attention to it. Be careful with it. God cares about how they oversee the church. They should oversee caring and tending and, and shepherding. And we're for caring there. It's, 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 it's the word that's otherwhere is, is translated as shepherd. And then Paul tells them why it's so important they pay close attention to themselves and to the church. He said, because Jesus has obtained the church with his own blood. Jesus has obtained the church with his own blood. The church was precious enough that Jesus died to buy it. So you pay attention to yourself and pay attention to the church. Christ sacrificed his own body. He bled and died for the church. So he's saying, don't take your own sanctification, your own calling lightly. It affects it. And that's not just for elders, by the way. Our own personal sanctification, how we watch our own lives, it affects the church. It affects other people here. It affects our testimony. It affects how we live amongst the church. And whether we're a healthy church or not, it, it to some degree, now, trusting in God's grace, depends upon are we watching ourselves? Are we paying attention to ourselves? Now, Aaron and I are called to that, especially we're going to be held to greater account. But, but this word of paying attention to ourselves because it affects the whole church, it doesn't just apply to elders. It applies to all of us. Our sanctification matters. Our growth in godliness matters. It affects your contribution in your family. It affects how you love your spouse or your children. It affects how you love your friends or not. It affects how you interact with people in your small group. It affects how you are here. Pay attention, he says, because Jesus died for the church that he's made you a part of and he's given you gifts. And then he goes on to warn them even further about why it's important by telling them what will happen after his departure. It's not just the dangers of their own hearts. He says that there's dangers that people will come in from without. And look in verse 29, he says, fierce wolves will come in among you. Think about that picture. They would have been very familiar with sheep and shepherding and the, the greatest threat in the in the east at that time two flocks of sheep would have been wolves sometimes wolves would sneak in amongst the sheep they would dart in and they would drag away the sheep and the shepherds wouldn't notice they'd be looking for the obvious pack to come in and yet wolves would come and they'd pick off one by one and they'd come in around and he says watch out because fierce wolves are going to come in amongst the sheep and sheep need protecting Now, it's not just elders' jobs to protect from fierce wolves, although it is our job. That's why we we must preach sound doctrine and we must refute false doctrine. But we have, as a church, we're, we're all called to watch out for the fierce wolves that people don't come in from without. And this wasn't a an unfamiliar warning. He was echoing Jesus' warning to his disciples in Matthew 7, 15. Jesus, in 15, verse 15, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're going to look like prophets. They're going to look like sheep. He says, but they're coming in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. 
and you will recognize them by their fruits. So Paul's warning against false prophets who are wolves that come in sheep's clothing. And wolves prey upon the flock. They're ravenous. They rip apart the flock. And, and how do wolves in the church do that? With false teaching, with sowing discord and disunity and dissension. By teaching things that are just slightly different enough to cause doubt, suspicion. In this charge, it's for not just for elders. And how do I know that? Well, um, in Second Peter 1, Peter's giving the same charge to the entire church. He's giving the same warning. In 2 Peter 2, 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Peter's describing false prophets here. And, and Jesus is saying, the wolves, they're false prophets. And Paul's saying, beware of the wolves that want to come in. Wolves in the church, they might look like sheep, but they're surreptitiously, secretly spreading false teaching and destructive heresies. And all of us need to pay careful attention that we don't fall prey to such wolves that come from without. And then in verse 30... Paul warns them further, not only will the wolves come in from outside, not only will you have to watch yourselves, but some of you will arise speaking twisted things in order to draw the disciples after him. What he's saying is that some of you might have wrong motives. Some of you who have become elders might have wrong motives and seek to draw a following after yourselves instead of leading people to follow the great shepherd. And, and you're going to speak twisted things, things that are corrupted, things that are perverse, that are enticing. What does that look like today? These, these are the kind of men, the kind of church that accepts sinful behavior as normative to draw crowds. That downplays the call to repentance. These men seek to draw a lot of people by distorting the truth. Telling people twisted things that they want to hear. They're palatable, but they're perverse. They're twisted. It's like telling people that if you only have enough faith, you're going to be prosperous financially. You know, because who doesn't want to hear that? But that's twisted. It's like telling people that, you know, because Jesus has called everybody to come to him, he, he, he means that I, he didn't call people to repent of their sins. They can come as they are, and it's okay to stay that way and be comfortable. Sounds good. It's going to draw a big crowd. It's twisted. And then he points him back to his example again as a demonstration of what does it look like to be alert. Look in verse 31. He says, therefore, be alert. So it says, pay attention, pay close attention, be alert. And then in verse 31, he says, therefore, be alert. Why? He points him back to his example again. Be alert. Why? Because, remember, and you're being alert. Remember what it looks like to be alert? He says, remember, for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, to warn people. Admonish means to warn, to say, look, look out. And that's the task that Paul was given that he gave to the elders. It's also a task, by the way, that, that each and every Christian has. If you, if you see your brother about to fall into a trap, is it loving to just say, well, there's a trap, but he's not asking many questions. <laughs> Whoops, he got stuck in that trap. 
What does love look like amongst the body? It looks like paying attention. It looks like being alert, warning people with tears. Now, not just warning people because you're high and mighty and telling people to do, but it's an admonishment with tears, with with love, with affection. Paul's saying, don't do that. It's going to mess your life up. Don't do that. It's not going to honor God. Don't do that. You're going to be falling to this trap of the fear of man. Don't do that. Don't look at those images. Don't go to those websites. Don't spend time with people like that. Don't do that. It's going to be harmful. He does it lovingly with tears. Then in calling them to attention to themselves and the flock, he he ultimately doesn't leave them trusting in, in themselves or even in him. Look in verse 32. He commends them. He says, Look in verse 32, to God and to the word of his grace. What, is, what does he leave them with? What does he commend them with? He says, I'm going to leave you with God and the word of his grace. And then look what he says. He says, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What's he telling you? What's, what's Paul trying to get across? What's Luke trying to get across? He's, I think he's saying this. The fifth thing we're going to look at is that live for the riches that matter most. Live for the eternal inheritance. Don't live for the here and now. God, in the word of his grace, he says, is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Don't live, don't be distracted by living for an earthly inheritance. God will give you the inheritance for all those who are sanctified. You can trust in his word and his grace. And then he reminds them what that looks like. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And he goes, for you you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. He says, I I didn't have to pay my own way. I paid my own way. Not only that, I paid the way for the people with me. And then in verse 35, he sums up that example. He says, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's one of the rare times that Jesus is quoted in the book of Acts. And Paul's pointing them to live for the inheritance and remember when people might benefit from us, when people might even use us, when we're spending our life for God and to minister to others. He's saying, remember, it's more blessed to give than receive. Why? Because you're going to receive an eternal inheritance. That's why it's more blessed to give than to receive. If you receive here on earth, you've received a reward. But the inheritance we receive in heaven is unsurpassing. He was living for an eternal inheritance. He calls them to remember the weak and be motivated by the words of Christ. You can trust that God's going to provide. Jeffrey Zaslow, he finished his article about Randy Pausch's last lecture. And he said, he hardly mentioned his cancer in his speech. Instead, he took everyone on a rollicking journey through the lessons of his life. His colleagues and students sat there buoyed by his words and startled by how the rush of one man's passion could leave them feeling so introspective and emotionally spent, all at once saddened and exhilarated. In 70 minutes on stage, he gave his audience reasons to reconsider their own ambitions. In his smiling delivery, he was so full of life that it was almost impossible to reconcile the fact that he was near death. This performance was his goodbye. After Paul's speech... 
passage ends much like a last lecture might end, but only if it was your brother. It ends with a sense of sobriety and sadness and deep brotherly affection, but at the same time, I, I'm inspired to consider my own ambitions. I'm inspired to think about what's most important to live for. What am I living for? It says in verse 36, the, the affection they had for each other. It says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. His address in this passage was to elders, but it's not limited to elders. It's meant to challenge us all, elders, non-elders alike. It's meant to make us think. This last lecture of Paul to the church in Ephesus is meant to make us think and encourage us in living for the gospel of God's grace and His everlasting kingdom. It's meant to make us think about what our ambitions are to run. Are we running for what matters most? Or who are we running for? Listen, in this life, we can be tempted to, to serve God for a reward um, here on earth or to live for the reward of status or money. Sometimes we can be even tempted to serve in the church because people will see us and think much of us. But let's set all those things aside. Let's forget what lies behind us now. Let's press on towards the goal for the upward prize of the call of Christ Jesus our Lord and the inheritance that we will receive in Him. A crown that is unfading, that will never fail, that is kept in heaven for us. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you can trust that the grace of God is able to build us up and give us the inheritance to all of those who are sanctified or set apart for Him. Sum up these verses. Paul saying to the elders in Ephesus, Give your life testifying to the gospel and ministering faithfully because that is what matters most. Give your life. Spend and be spent for the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel of His grace. Give yourself to God and His gospel commission. Give yourself to serving God's people. Give yourself to running the course. Give of yourself until you forget yourself in Christ. Give yourself to the word of His grace, trusting in Him for your inheritance. Amen. Well, let's pray. And as I pray, I'll have the band go ahead and come up. Father, I pray that there would be no condemnation here. But God, instead, I pray that we would make free confession in those areas that we have just let distract us, where we've put other things ahead of us. Lord, I, I pray that we would reflect on our lives as we see Paul reflecting on his life and that we would live for what matters most. We would live for serving and loving you and for the gospel of, this, of your grace because you've died for us and made us alive. And Lord, I pray we be motivated not by rewards here, but by an eternal inheritance that you promised to us. God, I pray that you would, you would enable us to pay close attention to ourselves, to our ambitions. God, I pray that you would enable us to count our lives as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And God, I pray that we would not run this race 
trusting in our own strength and ability, Lord, but I pray that we would place our faith in your grace that saved us to begin with, that will sustain us and is able to make us strong. And I pray that we look to you who began this faith in us, Lord, and will bring us to completion. In your name, amen. Well, let's stand and sing.